You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Uh, this is um, a special episode, um, is an episode with a cardiac surgeon, um, a name that I do not think uh, needs any introduction. Um, I have the honor of um, having me having with me on the show today, uh, Dr. Smith. Uh, Dr. Craig Smith um, is chairman of the Department of Surgery at the Columbia University Medical Center at uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's uh, a cardiac surgeon, um, performed the quadruple bypass that uh, saved former President Bill Clinton's life in 2004. Um, you know, we all know him through his pioneering work in cardiac surgery. I actually... Um, I was privileged to uh, hear one of his late-breaking uh, presentations at the American College of Cardiology annual scientific sessions when I was graduating from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center as a as an interventional fellow in 2016 um, when he was presenting data on intermediate risk transcatheter aortic valve replacement patients. Uh, I'm not sure if he will remember that I was, you know, one member in the vast audience there, um, and. Um, you know, one more thing in the introduction here is that Dr. Smith actually has come up with an excellent memoir, his his book, which is titled Nobility in Small Things, uh, A Surgeon's Path, uh, which he's authored and has been published actually earlier this week um, on October 10th. Um, and I've, I have a copy. Uh, he'll tell us more about this book, which is what this podcast is about. And uh, I encourage all our listeners to grab a copy as soon as you can, because I've started reading uh, the book and uh, it's hard for me to keep it down, uh, you know, between patients and uh, and spending time with my own boys. So with that introduction, Dr. Smith, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your kind introduction. I, I don't remember that. I don't remember you at that lecture, but I do remember that lecture. Yes, it was uh, a simultaneous New England paper uh, as well. Um, so uh, thank you for all that you've done to advance the field, as well as thank you for all the um, all the pioneering efforts uh, in cardiac surgery for your patients. Um, so I'm going to start uh, this conversation by asking you um, the motivation to to write this book, uh, which you know is is a beautiful book, by the way. So congratulations on on the publication of this book? Well, I would say a large part of it was driven practically because of the interest that followed the things that I was writing during the COVID first surge in New York City in March of 2020. I just, feeling that my department that I'm supposed to lead needed help with information and reassurance and and even inspiration to try to get through the whatever was ahead of us, which at that point we had no idea what was ahead of us. But I felt I had to do something. We weren't, weren't operating, weren't making money for the department. So I sat down and started writing these communications, essentially emails, every day. Uh, kept it up for 59 straight days. So the practical result of that was that they got, they ended up getting a lot of attention. They got 
I mean, in my small world, I suppose that you could say they were viral, but they acquired an audience far beyond my department, the intended audience. And so not long after things had sort of died down in late spring 2020, I started having interest expressed by agents and publishers in doing a book. So that is, I went through that process and picked a publisher and an agent and here we are. Uh, so I, I feel, obviously I'm very grateful and I'm I'm aware of how privileged that story sounds compared to the to real writers who struggle and struggle for years, even to get the attention of an agent, let alone a publisher. So having this sort of delivered to me was a great honor and something I'm grateful for. But I did not sit down like in 2015 and say, in a few years, I ought to write a book. It just kind of happened. Um, so that's where we are. Yes. Um, you know, organic um, outcome. Um, and, um, you know, you bring up uh, some of the emails that you started writing for uh, the intended audience, you know, which were your department members um, and how uh, those writings, um, you know, went beyond the walls, the four walls of your division or your department uh, at the Department of Surgery at Columbia University Medical Center. I actually um, stumbled upon your writings during the pandemic. Um, and you, you, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I mean, I, I know that the Wall, the Wall Street Journal, in quotes, uh, says here that it's, uh, you know, uh, the, the New York's most powerful writer in, in scrubs. And, you know, certainly uh, you became the voice of the pandemic. I was in Cleveland at the time. Uh, I was at the Cleveland Clinic and uh, I started reading what you were writing, um, I believe through the New York Times, correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, they were getting posted online or they were getting posted on LinkedIn. But there was an online medium through which I was accessing what you were sharing each of those 59 days. Well, you're not alone. And I, I, I had no idea until it was almost over how many people were in the same boat. Um, and I can't honestly tell you who was putting it on in different places. I know that my department, we, we have a group of people in the department who are supposed to manage social media and what you would call marketing if this were just a company. And they were responsible for circulating what I wrote each day to everybody in the department. But the people who managed that ended up with an increasingly long list of other people to circulate it to. Uh, some of them were people who called me and said, can I be on the list? Or they called other people. And I can't honestly tell you how he curated that list or how he whether he sent it to more than LinkedIn, so on. but I know it was, to my amazement, all over the place. I mean, it's a, another privilege to have that kind of audience put in front of you. Yes. So, which, which, I mean, I'm sure you know the the fact that um, when people read it, and you know, I read some of, um, I, I haven't read all 59 of those or 60 of those, um, but I did read quite a few of those and the, the way they were um, orchestrated, uh, you know, the way they painted the human emotion, the way they painted the struggles, the way they painted how each one of us uh, was experiencing the pandemic. Um, 
they they struck an an immediate chord with with the human experience um for lack of a better word um what describe describe to the to the listenership here what you would you were going through at a personal level uh you know obviously consuming um all that was being put out in the media um and you know in, in the press and how it changed your world or your view your your viewpoint of life of the world um and of what we do in medicine that's several questions all together i don't know if i can remember them all uh what was it for me personally was i think how you started and i can take that a little bit the the most obvious thing at the beginning was that me and people like me who'd spent in my case 38 years or whatever it was operating all the time doing this essentially one thing that's time consuming highly rewarding absorbing uh doing that for all those years day in day out to have that and then suddenly that was gone like from friday the following monday we we just didn't do that anymore for several months so would be hard to know exactly what their best analogy is, but it'd be like being thrown in jail, you know, taken out of your productive office and thrown in jail for a few months and had nothing to do. Now, so that was some of it. I didn't have nothing to do because I did feel uh, like it, that it was very important for me to do what I could do to lead the department, which is after all my job. And what could I do when I couldn't lead them by doing operations and helping other people do operations and bringing in revenue that supports our research and teaching and all? What could I do? Well, I, I decided what I had to try to do was to inform the audience. You could do the best synthesis of all that stuff slopping around every day that I could do and put it in simple terms that would inform. That was number one. And then try to reassure people that someone's hand was at the helm and that we were thinking about the issues ahead and how to get there. So that turned out to fill my absent OR time pretty well. Uh, I think one of the questions you asked along the way, or you, you sort of implied that I must be studying the pandemic. Well, I was, I guess, to an extent, I'm not sure I was publishing it any more meticulously and scientifically than many other people, but I sure grabbed on to the things that seemed most relevant day by day, and I paid close attention to the, we had meetings with the leadership of the hospital and the university practically every day, sometimes many times a day, talk about the latest numbers and the latest supply and this and that, and those were things that don't get your attention very easily in another setting, but in that setting, I paid close attention to those things, and they were the often the backbone of what I would say that day. And it fell into a pattern, sort of, with a paragraph or so of structure around, or, or practical tidbits that are built around those things. Like, today we have so many masks, and tomorrow we have this coming, and things like that. And then move from the practical we well, hear the facts on the ground that move from the practical to something 
a little, little bit more, if not symbolic, at least a little bit more human about you know, a variety of things, what we must be feeling, what other people are feeling, what's our mission, other examples from history of comparable missions that were met in certain ways. And then I would try to wrap it up with something that uh, was, if not inspirational, uplifting, encouraging. I, I tried very hard never to end on a bummer. And so that that was the plan. I, I looked at each one of them like, the mental model I had was a popular song, and you know, popular songs are all about three, three and a half minutes long, and that's a, that's about someone's attention span for something like this. So I aimed to write something you could read in a few minutes, and just have it have those three elements. Um, now I've probably forgotten some of the other things you asked in, in your question. Uh, no, this is a f- fantastic answer, and um, you know what I wanted to ask you as a follow-up to uh, the answer is um, as, a, as, as a chair of a prominent department and, and division and, you know, doing what you do on a daily basis, which is, you know, highly skilled work um, and then being um, thrown into the, the throes of the pandemic and, you know, New York, New York certainly was one of the first cities which was very heavily hit. Uh, you know, we were following the news um, across the spectrum of uh, how news is delivered um, in 2020, I guess in 2020 and 2023. And what was was it in you, which was such a a calling that you had to do this for your colleagues? Um, Because where that, and the reason I asked this question is that wherever that calling was coming from, wherever that place, whatever that place was inside you, in, you know, inside your heart, in your soul, is was such a pure, pure place because it has to be pure for it to have hit, um, you know, for it to have hit so many people um, emotionally and for, for you to have struck such a chord. Um, and that's the reason why I asked this question. It's a very flattering question. You make me feel like Gandhi or uh, Churchill or something. But and I can't. I wish I could say uh, that it came from some deep well of of uh, genius of some kind. I didn't think of it that way. I I I really thought this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, we're all immobilized at least immobilized as defined by the things we're accustomed to doing every day. And we have to respond. It seemed obvious that everyone in medicine, let alone my department, was going to have to try to find a role to play in this unprecedented healthcare crisis. And that response has to be led by the leaders. So by definition, I was the leader of my department. It was my responsibility to take care of that. And I really didn't think of it in such glorified terms. Um, I mean, it's very kind of you to say, and I maybe I'm more glorified than I think, but it was, um, it evolved out of a little more practical mental space, I'd say. Yes. And, you know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, the, what, what I said comes from a, from an honest 
space, a true space as a reader of your writings. Um, um, it, and I, I also ask this question because, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a poet and a writer myself. And I think each time I'm trying to write something which is philosophical or which, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm trying to share a human emotion. I, I truly, truly want to parse it through, um, the various sieves of, um, you know, ego and, you know, you know, in, in terms of who I think I am, but who I truly am. Uh, and, you know, the reason I'm getting to this question is, is uh, the, the reason is because, um, as I was uh, going through the contents of the book, um, I mean, th- this is a, this is a deep philosophical book. Um, you know, it's 16 chapters and it, it starts off with, uh, or I, I would say, six, you know, 16, um, sections, if, if not chapters, if you will. Uh, and then, you know, these, uh, these sections are the, the way they are, um, labeled or, you know, what their, what their headings are. Um, you know, are, are deeply, deeply philosophical. And, uh, and, you know, that is, that is the reason that was the motivation of my question. So, but, but getting to these 16 sections, um, and I don't want this to be a spoiler alert of, of any kind, but would you, would you like to walk the listeners through this, through the book? Uh, sure. Um, <clears throat> and thank you for, for thinking I put some thought into my title and my chapter titles and subheadings because I did. So thank you for thinking there's more to it than just chronology. But to walk you through it, I started out with how did I get where I am? That obviously takes me into the realm of memoir, inevitably going into the realm of autobiography and memoir by explaining how I got where I am. And why did I think that was worth explaining? Because I think that I didn't follow a straight path from, you know, high school into college, into medical school, the way most doctors probably do, especially then. And I had fluctuating motivations and fluctuating goals. And in the course of all those years, did some things that I was very lucky to survive, quite honestly, just plain lucky and showed bad judgment in any number of realms and was able to stumble through and figure it out and land where I probably knew I wanted to land, but had to wander for a while to come back to it. Tell us more about those places because, you know, I think in part Parallax is a memoir of um, and cardiologists we all look up to. And, uh, I think when we do that here at Parallax, we are wanting to get behind, um, the person we know only through, you know, the Journal of Medicine papers or the American College of Cardiology late breakers, but there's a lot more to it. And so I think this is that, this is that safe platform where, we, we get to know the humans. So I'd be very, very interested and keen and curious to learn about all those detours of yours because, you know, obviously they had a lot to do in how you are, uh, you know, where you are now and how you are today. 
I'm getting, let me, I'll try to give you a more focused answer than I was giving you then. Cause uh, let's say I'm talking about the first, say four chapters before I actually became a doctor. And when I was junior high school, high school age, I was all about athletics. That's almost all I cared about. I did reasonably well in school, but not all that well. Uh, there were parts of school that came easily to me, like writing, reading, and so on. Parts of school that didn't come easily at all, like math. But I was really all about playing football and lacrosse and wrestling, whatever. I did all kinds of things. And when I, I, I got, I was very fortunate to get into a good college, Williams College. I was actually, uh, I arrived on campus completely paranoid about what I think is actually the fact that I was probably the last person taken in my class. I was snatched off the waiting list in something like August. And I had the highest ID number of anybody I knew at my college. So I assumed I was the last guy in. And I didn't think I'd last a semester. But something about college clicked for me. And I started studying, doing the work. I was playing football, lacrosse and all, but uh, I was doing the work. And college was like a new world. And I, by, against all odds, I turned out to do quite well. So in college, a bunch of injuries and my athletic career was unbalanced, disappointing throughout, I'd say. Um, and a bunch of injuries finally ended it. But I, I can't say I missed it. So by the time I was well into college, I had, had you know, this, this new world of the creativity in science, creativity in philosophy, other things. I, I took college pretty seriously, took all the courses I could take. It, that interested me, did the work. I, I still hung out with all my crazy friends, but did the work. But that produced a shift in focus. I decided, well, I'd been focused on medical school the first couple of years, had all the pre-med requirements out of the way. Maybe I should be a scientist. So I went off on this tangent, pursuing a PhD in biophysics for a couple of years. Total mismatch of personality that I should have realized sooner than I did, but be that as it may. Devoted two years to it. Actually ended up doing a very interesting project that if I'd finished it, might have been quite interesting. But for most reasons, I won't bore you with it's discussed in the book. I dropped out of graduate school. So then I had some time to fill. Now, I guess backing up to what is discussed in the book, during my summers in college, I worked in a steel mill in Philadelphia a couple of summers. Hot, dangerous, dirty work. Got badly injured, almost killed, literally. Uh almost twice almost killed in one part of that job. Uh, recovered from all that. So fast forward, dropped out of graduate school. Then I had to, I had some time to fill. I was still trying to think, what do I want to do? Do I want to go to medical school? I had to, had to have a job. So I got a job as a telephone lineman in White River Junction, Vermont, and spent a little over a year doing that. Now, that's quite an interesting job. And the people you work with in rural Vermont are very interesting people, very impressive people. People in the steel mill are impressive in their own ways too. I mean, one of the things I think the journey of my life has taught me is how interesting and how individual, how unique individuals are in all walks of life. But as it may, I was a telephone lineman for a little over a year. That's well covered in the book. And during that time, decided medical school was for me. So I applied, fortunate enough to get in despite that checkered tale. And off I went. So, and I, as I, I think I also say in the book, medical school, I most people find this hard to believe. 
easiest four years of my life. Uh, no motivational problems at all. I knew what I was there for. I had to absorb a body of knowledge and acquire the skills necessary to become a doctor. And it, it just seems so stressless and easy. Just do the work. And did find a medical school, got a good residency and all. That's where the, from there on, the path is much more straight and narrow. But it did take me a while to get there. I should, I'll pause for breath for you and me. Am I covering what you want to hear? Yeah, no, this is, this is excellent. This is exactly what, uh, you know, uh, what the motivation was for, for, for my question. Um, and, you know, thank you for sharing uh, that with us, with the listenership so, so vividly. So, uh, you know, if anyone who's following and who wants to take this episode, uh, episode as a preamble, uh, to the book, which, you know, again, I, I encourage all of us to pick up a copy. Um, we are now into section four and section five, and it's a perfect place to stop because section five and the way it's titled uh, is just fascinating. And it's, it's titled making sausage. Um, and it's got four components to it, for lack of a better word, or four sections to it. Uh, and you can correct me, Dr. Smith, if I'm wrong here, um, you know, which is Rochester, Roads Not Taken, then Columbia Presbyterian and Thanksgiving. Do you want to, do you want to take a deep dive into this section for us just because of how interesting it is making sausage? Well, in essence, it's about how doctors are made in the residency process. And takes me takes takes you through my general surgery and vascular fellowship in Rochester and through my cardiac surgery residency in New York um, and all the stresses and trials and tribulations that go along with that and and the pleasures of it I hope come through as well but those are difficult years for anyone. But there are also years, and I don't know if I make this clear enough, this particular point, there are years that go by very fast. And that's partly because you are learning so much, doing so much, so absorbed, so involved in something that seems larger than yourself that it just flies by. Uh, but it's a lot of work. And those years that are covered in that chapter how the sausage was made then would be considered barbaric by the standards of today. And I get where they're coming from, but they, they trained me awfully well. And there were a lot of doctors of my generation and generations before me who had the benefit of very good training and ended up highly skilled. But there's no short pathway to those skills. Uh, Stresses were different in both places. I had this, you know, going to New York was quite a psychological challenge for me because I always been terrified of New York. And then I had, because of the way the system worked in those days, I had two years from the time I was accepted for that cardiac residency. I had two years to worry about whether I would succeed in it. And in this big city that still partially terrified me. But I, by then I'd bitten the, you know, I'd, I'd taken the bait and I could see that there was something really big maybe down there. Um, Columbia Presbyterian is one of the few places then doing any heart transplant. And that sounded kind of exciting. And they'd had, they had great congenital surgery. And, and my visits had shown me what a complex place it was. And 
it's a place, and this is true today and was true then, it's a place that can be overwhelmingly intimidating if it's not your cup of tea. Um, but it just it just uh, stuck with me. And I uh, maybe that's something wrong in me that makes those kinds of experiences so so interesting. Uh, and maybe that leads back to the swerves that I took earlier in life. Maybe not. But it covers those years that are, uh, so there's so much in them, but they're over so fast. Yes. And, um, you know, from from the years and, and from the detours in your early life, uh, you know, until you were in college and medical school, um, w- were there any experiences you think which made it easier for you to survive the residency years? And I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, you, I, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I think the, just the, the years as house staff and, and then as a fellow are some of the most beautiful years I consider, um, you know, in my own path. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still early career. I'm only six years out of fellowship. Um, but but you've had such you've had i mean you know such rich experiences before your um introduction to you know college and medical school were there any particular traits experiences which made you more resilient uh, as a house staff in cardiac surgery well i'd say i was more resilient in part because i'd by then gone through and recovered from a lot of injuries uh, that are talked about in the book, and I won't drag you through it. But I've been a, a patient in hospitals several times for not long periods of time, and all my injuries were recoverable, but there were a fair number of them. And each injury like that when you're a teenager or a young kid, I think is maturing. And if you're fortunate enough to have a recoverable injury and get through it okay, it matures you and makes you more resilient, gives you a little bit more grit. So I had that. And then by the time I got to be in residency, I'd also been scorched in the fire of some, of some difficult employment. So the two summers in the steel mill, um, that's tough, dangerous, dirty work. Um, and then in the, in, in the telephone companies, alignment, same kind of thing. In both places, most, I would say, more impressively, more obviously, in the line crew, because it was a different sort of, these are rural country people, and they're very compelling people. And in some, what that you get a kind of resilience from that by learning that you can work hard and that you can work past what you think you can do. And also, you learn how, how hard other people work. And how people in what most most might consider dead end jobs, how they take their they sh- they show respect for their jobs and for themselves and the way they do them, and there are people who work very hard and don't get all the privileges that go along with being a doctor. Uh, I think probably more than any other single thing, that awareness was sort of hammered into me over all those years. And that certainly helps with residency. And there were some practical things. I mean, I, I learned how to, in the steel mill you worked, it's a 24-7 operation. And 
learn how to work through the night and work all shifts. And um, so when you go to medical school or go to residency and you have to be up most of the night doing something, you've done that before. You know you'll get through it. You know, you'll catch the sleep up sometime. So I'd, I'd say all those things did help me prepare for residency. Yes, and uh, I want to talk about um, Section 8 um, of the book, which is, you know, titled Bypassing a President. And this this is um, when you operated on former President Bill Clinton. Uh, walk, walk us through that section of the book. I haven't gotten there, but I, I, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you in person. That's right. It's ironic. Somebody just yesterday told me, well, you know, everybody's reading that chapter first. I thought, well, that's interesting because to me, it's one of the most uninteresting chapters um, when I go back and read through it because it's just reporting for the most part. At least that's how I respond to it. Um, I don't think I would have been satisfied if it was pure reporting, but compared to other chapters, it's reporting an event. And But it was quite an event. There's no getting away from that. I'm not going to stand here and pretend to minimize that. And there's an awful lot I left out. And I would say that, well, I, I guess I, I should be careful how much I say about it too, because part of the reason I left out a lot of the detail is because an event like that doesn't always cast our profession in the most flattering light. And I just don't like to be too negative about things, but in an event like that, some really uh, unadmirable behavior comes up. Um, I mean, what we do is supposed to be about the patient, not about our own careers or our own moment in the spotlight or our institution's moment in the spotlight. It is all those things. And believe me, I was grateful to have the attention, have the reputational boost of doing that and I know my institutions were as well, um, but I had, I, I honestly did soft pedal a fair amount of the bad behavior. Some of it's still there, but I'd say the thing everyone asks is how, how could it not be incredibly stressful? Well, it had its stresses, but the thing I may or may not make clear in the, in the chapter is that because it was the event itself, the thing I had to do for the president was very routine to me. I realize that doesn't make it routine to the president or to anybody else, but it was routine to me and my team. And the president, like everybody else, deserved the safe harbor of routine. And our goal was, and to, our, to the best we could, I think we delivered on that, was to make his encounter as routine as we could make it. Now, Obviously, a lot of routine goes out the window when you have Secret Service in the operating room, or at least you would think a lot of routine goes out the window. And when you have to take over a wing of the hospital so that the Secret Service can keep him from being, you know, whatever is in their minds during his hospital stay, and the amount of media attention, all it's just that's not normal. I'm not going to pretend that it is. But when it comes down to the specific encounters that are the doctor-patient encounters for me and the president, meeting him, examining him, studying his angiograms, deciding what to do, picking a team to work on, picking a day and getting it all set up. 
and then going in the room and doing the case. That we kept as routine as we could, and it was really quite routine. His operation was relatively straightforward in the, in the bigger picture of coronary surgery. Uh, so all of that we could rest on. And another thing I have told many people, and I can't remember if I say this exactly in the book, but I truly did not realize what a big deal this was. And th- this is the absolute truth. I did not realize what a big thing this was until I walked out into the lobby for the first press conference. Then I got it. And that day I'd come in oh five thirty in the morning or something. There were a lot of press trucks around, but there was nobody else around. I went into my office, did my thing, went to the operating room. He went to the ICU and they had this press conference up and I walked into this lobby through this little back door and the place was packed to the rafters and went up on the dais with my colleagues and answered questions and so on. That's when I realized that this was just all over the world in real time. And that was great. I mean, uh, I often don't do well in those. Sometimes I don't do well in those settings. I'm not a, I don't live for being in front of the press, but everybody should have the chance to feel so admired at least once in their life. Um, so it was quite an event. And the other part that I try to emphasize when this question comes up is that, the, the, that Bill Clinton and the Clintons as a family were great to work with. Uh, just good people, straightforward. I mean, compared to many VIPs or wealthy people, um, most of them are fine to work with too, but not all. <clears throat> they can be very difficult, very demanding, very unreasonable. Uh, there's a sort of a syndrome among people like that, that they will look around until they find somebody who will give them what they think they want, not someone whose judgment they should be trusting. Uh, surround themselves with people whose career depends on taking care of people like them rather than on medicine per se. Um, so a lot of pitfalls in that, but they were great patients. He was great to work with. Hillary was great to work with. I didn't have much contact with Chelsea, but um, mostly with Bill and Hillary, and they were good to work with. Yeah, no, um, just, um, you know, I just, I had goosebumps as I was listening to you. And I think the the, the part that I, you know, liked the most, you know, I think you, you said something which, again, really struck a chord, which, uh, again, just um, completely just... Um, you know, shines a light on the human in you um, is um, that you would want every human to be admired the way you were admired when you operated on him. And just uh, just to say that, for you to say that was just incredible to hear. Because, um, you know, uh, uh, to have a celebrated career like yours uh, would be any professional's dream. And uh, to then have you speak those words with such humility is just shines the human in you. So thank you for saying those words. Um, I do want to talk to you about religion, which is, you know, section nine or chapter nine of the book. Uh, and I, 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 w- I wanted to talk to you about this because, uh, you know, f- this, this is, uh, this is an important topic of discussion for, uh, I, I, I personally think for physicians as well as for the scientific community, um, and you know this, and I even bring this up because uh, there is a paper which is going to be 
coming coming out in the European Heart Journal, which I'm a co-author, uh, which talks about religiosity and spirituality as a medical prescription. And when I when I saw this um, chapter, I was enamored uh, that a surgeon uh, of your stature would would write about religion. Talk to us about that a little bit. Well, have you read the chapter? I have not. I have not read the chapter. Then you might be. Then the I, you'll probably find that the title is misleading. Is it deliberately misleading? Perhaps. Uh, you you now singled out the chapter that is my wife's least favorite chapter in the book, and it's one that I added back in. It it, it was a I, I wrote the draft. It went in. It came out. It went in. It came out. Ended up back in. I mean, there was some discussion about where to put it once my editor and I had decided that we liked it. Because it's about religion, but from my experience of it. And my experience of it is not what many people would call devout or um, spiritual, maybe in the sense that the title implies, that the chapter title implies. But that, I'm sorry to say, better for worse, that is my experience with religion. And I, there are good things about it, too. One of the things I mentioned is in my brief sojourn as a Congregationalist in Chicago in eighth grade, when I was confirmed in the local Congregational Church, they, as part of the confirmation training process, which is probably similar in outline to a similar step in religion that many religions go through. They, you know, reach that age, it's like a bar mitzvah or something, or that age about when you're just becoming a mature adult or about to be a mature adult and sort of interesting time in life. Nonetheless, part of it involved teaching Bible and all those kinds of things. We also visited other churches all over the city of Chicago and that actually was fascinating to me because they were all so different, but all so much the same that it gave me the feeling that whatever you wanted to define as religion or as religiosity or the spirit philosophy that is behind it, they have a lot more in common than separates them. So the Greek Orthodox service may be very different than a Quaker service or a Jewish service or Catholic service, and we went to them all, but they all seem to spring from a common well. And that to me was an important take-home lesson. And I had to credit my church at the time, if that was what they were intending to show, and credit to them for making the point. I'm not sure it was what they were trying to show, and I, I turned out not to be a, a long-term success in their minds. Yeah. Anyway, when you get to the chapter, see if it resonates at all. Uh, I wind through some uh, territory that will just, you know, typical adolescent bad behavior and stuff. To you'll get there. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly am looking forward to um, going through the the book in in the right chronology and. Um, because uh, I, 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 you know, I, I have to be honest with you. I have been enticed to get to both these chapters, you know, bypassing a president and, and religion. But I, I want to honor the chronology because I, I want to savor this memoir of yours 
Um, final few minutes on the on the podcast, Dr. Smith. What has been the most um, educational experience for you as you were putting this together? As I was doing the book, yes. A good question. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I I guess I certainly learned how hard it is, but I can't say as I'm surprised by that. I and one of the reasons among many reasons that I had never seriously thought about writing a book until now was I didn't think I had the uh, ability to put that much of yourself into something over such a long period of time with no guaranteed reward. One of the things that surgeons get to enjoy, and probably doctors in general, is a much more immediate kind of gratification than most people in the world get. Uh, and writing a book could be the ultimate delayed gratification experience. So I think I, I, I learned that that is true and that uh, it just gives me even more admiration for writers who have decided they want to be writers when they were 10 and do that and go through years and years of no gratification and no publisher and they keep writing and they keep rewriting and submitting and all. And it is tough. And there, it's been described a thousand different ways, you know, the art of applying the seat of the pants to the seat of the chair and that sort of thing. But it certainly taught me the truth of what it's like to, to write seriously as a professional. And I don't flatter myself, at least yet, that I'm a professional that, in that domain. And then um, you may have touched upon this, you know, while while you were answering this question. But what do you think was the most challenging aspect of writing? I, uh, at least for me, the most challenging aspect was uh, going through in the early stages multiple revisions of content when there didn't appear to be an obvious. A unifying view of the people I was working with on what I was aiming for. Now, they would probably turn that right around and say that was a problem because I didn't have a unified view of what I was trying to achieve. And I would not argue that point. But what that meant was that content came in, came out, came back in. Uh, writing thousands of words to keep a hundred words. And again, I suspect that's just plain old business of writing. But when you're so accustomed to, you come in in the morning, you do an operation, the operation's over, the patient does well, they go home in a couple of days or five or six days, and you do another one and the same thing happens. And you're not going back and revising one operation 50 times and, so it's a different scale of endeavor, and that was a little hard. But by the, once we got to the point of a pretty solid first draft, well, then things became more clear. And actually, the, the part I enjoyed probably the most was was refining what we had agreed upon once we had agreed upon it, and trying to make each chapter, each paragraph, each sentence be right. That was the part that was the Easiest and most enjoyable, I'd say. Yeah, no, just um, thank you for sharing your journey with us. Um, 
you know, uh, as, as an author, as a surgeon, your, your early life, um, any closing remarks? Um, I think, I think before, before we get there for what would be your, um, your advice to physicians, doctors, surgeons, uh, who want to write? Um, I think that's, that's one question I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, for, for myself as well as, as well as for others who are listening who may be putting authors and writers. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I have already discovered that it's one I'm being asked, and I wish I had a better answer because I think it you just have to do it. And once you know it's something you want to do, you have to find space for it in your life. And I honestly didn't, it, it wasn't enough of what I wanted to do that I made space for it until the pandemic. But I did the usual sort of professional writing, editorials, commentaries, you know, scientific manuscripts on this and that and the other thing. I've got this huge bibliography and working with other people and so on. But I never did writing like this. Never really thought I wanted to. But I think now that I've done it, it takes some dedication. It takes time and dedication. And you just have to do it and be confident is what you want to do. And then it'll probably happen. Because, you know, doctors bring a lot of unique experience to topics that are relevant to people. So find a way to express them. I really don't think I'm a very good person to give advice on how to be a writer. Well, thank you. And, and, you know, thanks again for your time. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thanks again. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.